0: Good morning, and welcome to another podcast um, with Esther. We are going to be diving into a couple different topics today while I drive and um, kind of honing in on um, a number of different things that we haven't really addressed yet regarding case management and advocacy. Um, The two topics I think we're going to get to today Uh, are going to be, one, how we uh, decide whether or not we're going to go out on a call out. Um, Right now we are receiving calls from the juvenile departments uh, when they find two or more red flags on a a youth who's brought in for a runaway um, and then brought in through their juvenile intake center. And as you can imagine, most kids who are on the run, they're experiencing two or more red flags simply by being on the run. And you know, the reason why they went on the run in the first place, we've usually got two red flags right there. So it's a lot of calls to our hotline and we're trying to establish, um, an additional set of questions for our advocates to ask the uh, juvenile worker to determine whether or not it's really appropriate for our services to respond um, or if there might be um, a need for some other department or other kind of service provider to respond instead because it's maybe it's not trafficking related. So uh, we're going to talk about questions we could ask uh, to help clarify. Uh, We don't personally respond to the juvenile department 24-7 on a call-out unless we've got three or more red flags and even then uh, we're trying to assess kind of what that looks like. Um, And then if we have time we're going to also talk about how we support youth who are in secure uh, inpatient settings or secure mental health settings uh, regarding their feelings and thoughts about their placement. Um, Kind of weighing uh, the, the sort of delicate role of being an advocate that advocates for youth and uh, elevates the youth's voice without sort of um, de- helping uh, maybe deteriorate uh, relationships with their treatment team. Because obviously when youth are in uh, mental health environments, we aren't the expert on whether or not um, it's right for them to be there. It's not really our Um, expertise and we're not qualified to make decisions about whether or not they should be placed there or not. We're simply there to sort of elevate the voice of the youth and sit with their feelings and honor their feelings about it. And sometimes just doing that, um, you can do that in a way that honors, I think, the relationships in the room and doesn't detract, um, doesn't sort of blow that whole situation up, which we don't want to do. We don't want to be part of severing relationships that kids have with their own treatment team. Uh, but we do want their voice to be heard. So um, two different topics today. So let's just dive into the first one. Um, Advocacy according to Esther, uh, and the topic is how to determine whether or not we are going to be the responder to a call out. Um, When we receive, call out requests from law enforcement. It's very straightforward. If they are calling Safety Compass out, they highly suspect a youth of being trafficked and we will go 100% of the time they request us. Um, Similarly, I think that for an emergency room to call us out, they've got to have some pretty strong indicators. Otherwise, they would probably just be calling out the sexual assault response advocates for that county um, or simply not calling an advocate at all because they're used to dealing with all kinds of crises uh, and people at all kinds of risk that don't actually meet a trafficking criteria. So if they're calling us out, uh, we're likely to be responding 100% of the time. But what we're noticing with juvenile departments is it's a really great environment for them to be doing some pretty significant screening to understand the backgrounds of the kids that are coming in. Um, and because of that, they get all kinds of information about all kinds of risk and, um, our contract with them states that they will connect with us, and so they're, they're also, uh, fortunately, we're really lucky that they're also really good about calling us, but what we realize is the number of uh, calls that we receive are actually uh, pretty staggering, and our capacity is in question. If we don't do a good job of really vetting uh, what cases are right to go out on and which are not. So um, just some, uh, food for thought about how to determine that when, when they call and they say, you know, we've got to run away. Well, right there, we've got one red flag. We know that, right? This youth has been on the run, which is, um, a risk factor in and of itself. And then we ask questions or we listen for them to disclose, um, what is the background or history of this youth? Do they have a prior history of abuse documented or that they have access to, or have they disclosed a prior history of abuse? um. What's home life like? Do they have a home locally that um, they feel safe going back into? Or has home been unsafe for them? Or is their home of origin actually somewhere else? If it's out of state and they're being actually held like on an interstate compact um, and going to go to juvenile detention because they have to be returned, just them being out of state is another huge red flag. I would say if we've got a kid on the run picked up from out of state, uh, we almost always would go out on that kid, even if those are the only two red flags we have. Um, we'd be searching for more information, but that's a really, really high risk factor to me that a kid's out of state. Um, other things we're looking for, are like, did they come in with cash? Did they come in with, um, hotel room, uh, key cards? Uh, do they express gang affiliation, uh, flip gang signs, have gang colors, uh, gang related tattoos? Do they have tattoos actually at all? And if so, have they asked them about them and, uh, what is their description? You know, it's one thing to have, like... A little flower tattoo or a little, you know, whatever, like a kite or, you know, a picture of something that's just like benign, right? But it's a totally different thing if they have like some guy's street name tattooed on their body <laughs> or um, loyalty tattooed on their body or um, a crown or a money sign or a dollar bill, or, you know, things that are really traditional, very straightforward sex industry related uh, tattoos would be another red flag by themselves. But we also see all kinds of tattoos um, being worth noting, even if it's not a red flag, right? So, like, we've noticed that different gang sets, especially of the more, um, I would say, unhoused uh, microculture that are experiencing, like, homelessness and then exchanging sex for uh, basic needs survival, uh, that a lot of their tattoos are not sex industry specific. They're much, they're usually homemade, um, and look kind of rudimentary. And a lot of times it will be like their affiliation to their street family, but it's not straightforward. And so just finding out more about their own sort of self description of their tattoo and seeing if there's any red flags in the descriptions, probably more um, of a way to determine that. Um, okay, so, and then as, as they start to talk and give us answers to those questions, we're sort of probing and continuing to think about like either Do we have three red flags now based on their feedback or, you know, are, are there flags that they do have just so clearly, obviously the sex industry, we don't need three. Like for example, if someone comes in with one red flag, but the red flag is that, um, they got picked up by the police for posting online for sex and the police brought them there because they're from out of state. Okay. Well now we, we know what they're up to, right? We don't need any more red flags, um, They were brought in because they are determined to be in the industry. So we're just going to go out on that kid, obviously. Um, Other things that might warrant a deeper dive, if we're not sure, but looking for more information, um, were they picked up with an older male? Were they picked up in a car with a guy? And it seems to signify that maybe they were there turning a trick. We're going to go out on that kid for sure. Um, were they, did they have like a million runs? Like if their only red flag is their run history, but they actually have 14 runs, we're going to go on that kid 100% of the time because statistically speaking, it's, it's almost impossible for that kid not to have had to exchange sex at this point for survival. Um, even if there's not a commercial element, we're just looking for the commercial element, but feeling like this kid's extremely high risk just based on the number of runs. Um... So, so seek to learn more about the circumstances related to this kid. Um, what's their family dynamic like? What's their home or like where they live environment like? Do they live in foster care? Well, there's a red flag by itself. Um, gender is not a determining factor because obviously kids who identify all kinds of ways and have all kinds of identities are exploited. So that is not um, an indicator of risk or lack thereof. But I would say, you know, we we tend to look at the trans youth population as a really just extremely vulnerable population. So I might say that, especially if you've got other risk factors involved, um, I would just be paying extra close attention probably to a youth um, who comes in and identifies as trans and then experiences other red flags, even if they're not disclosing trafficking. Um, so start there. And sort of peel the onion back ask those questions see what they're um offering up and i think that if the worst case scenario is that we go out on a kid and and it did we've determined that they have run away um maybe had a sexual abuse history um, but that; those are the only things we're, we're finding out. At least they've met a supportive person who can refer them to, you know, in Clackamas County, we would be referring 100% of those kids who are deemed not really for our services. We'd re- we would be referring them to Clackamas Women's Services, who has a teen advocate who is assigned to sexual assault survivors, right? Or if they're really high risk for trafficking, they are being sexually exploited. There's just no commercial element. Um, like maybe they're, you know, uploading their own porn videos or something like that. We would be still um, offering to refer them to Village for One for mental health services. Some kids don't want mental health, and that's okay. But we would always be offering to connect them to a therapist, and that would be a Village for One. So um, we've got a few options there that I think it still uh, can be really useful to connect to those kids. Um, But just for our own capacity reasons, we don't just want to go out automatically on every call um we do want to continue to dive into determining risk. So hopefully that's helpful uh when you look at um how to have a conversation with the juvenile worker that calls us um and right now like I said we're probably experiencing the most call volume from the Clackamas County Juvenile Intake Center, which is great because they're screening really well. They're really great ab- about calling um you also can have a conversation with the um, uh, staff member around what just what they think. Like, what's their gut feeling and what do they think would be the most helpful? I found that to be useful because sometimes they'll say, you know what? We're calling because it's our protocol, but I honestly don't think this kid is. They're not dressed like it. They're not talking like it. They seem to have run from only one home. It's their home of origin. They haven't described abuse there. Like, I really don't think that this is happening for this kid. It's just they met the two risk factor criteria um that's validating that's helpful if you're already thinking gosh this doesn't quite seem like it the staff member can validate that or or not right i've also talked to staff where i've kind of probed them with the same question and they're like yeah i realize we've only described two risk factors but i really think this kid is involved like their, you know, they have their nails done, um, their hair is perfectly done, but they say that they've been on the run for, you know, eight months. Well, how are they doing that? Like, how is their life affording them that if they've been on the run for eight months? And, you know, they might just kind of, as they talk, describe their own gut feeling. And that might be, um, another way to help you make the call. So, um, dive deeper with questions and then just know that we're going to do our best to support you. We, we don't want to, stand down from our responsibility and not go out on calls we need to go out on but we also really want to watch our capacity and just unburden you from the situations that really are not a good fit for our services so just uh we'll work on that as we go i think we'll kind of reassess at least quarterly at doing check-ins at staff meeting to find out whether or not we feel like we're able to determine risk factors well this way or not and we'll just go from there so i'll switch gears now as we um So to move into the second topic here of today's podcast, I want to look at uh, kids who are are in treatment environments, so mental health treatment environments that are secure or at least semi secure and who um, we have on our caseload and we're trying to either sit in on a treatment team meeting, maybe sit in on a wrap meeting, but we're in this interesting position often as we're supporting kids when they get to their treatment team meeting or their wrap meeting And we've been advocating for them. They may and often have shared some pretty difficult feelings of, you know, everything from isolation from friends and family to, you know, a very drastically altered lifestyle, which actually might be really good for them. But man, does it feel hard as they work through the trauma that kind of comes up as they get safe and then try to replace old lifestyle, old old trauma with like new lifestyle and safe behavior. So. It's hard and it's hard work and it is isolating and they are separated from friends and family. And if you think about if that was your own life or like your own kid's life, just it is really significant. I think sometimes we get so used to placing kids that we can lose sight of the significance of long term treatment that that is secure. So it's a really big deal. And we have the honor of sitting with the kids feelings about that. Um, but also have a responsibility to do no harm. And and we really do have a responsibility to do our best to do no harm. And um, when kids are in treatment facilities, you know, the whole criteria that got them there was a mental health screening and we are not mental health clinicians. And so, you know, the criteria that keeps them there and keeps them working through their treatment plan is mental health based. And really we don't have the expertise or the, certification to to really even have an opinion about that really our whole role there is to work with the kid support the kid bring the kid encouragement for their time there and then amplify their voice but not in a way that I mean we can really wield a lot of power here that can do harm if we handle the situation um taking on responsibility that's not ours to take on, getting out of our lane, or speaking from a place of expertise that we simply don't have, right? So, for example, a kid may say, um, I hate being here and I want to get out, right? And so, us doing our job wants to sit with the hardship of being there and maybe the grief of being there and just really hear it, um, observe it, honor it, um, even, um, validate that that would be a really normal feeling. But as soon as we switch gears from the honoring process and even sharing with the team, like, you know, as I'm here today to validate this kid's experience, I just want to share that I know that they're having a hard time. Like if a person gives you an release, a release of information, for example, and they say, I want you to help me voice my thoughts at the team meeting, you can be like, okay. And so the way we're going to do that is we're going to you know share that this has been really hard and like what are some ways maybe this team can really rally around supporting you in this hard time that would be the way that we would amplify their voice and honor it that is very different than saying to the team you know they really want out of here and me looking from the outside in you know i feel like they've been here a long time and in front of all you people and in front of the youth i'm going to say i don't think that they should be here anymore that's not advocating for the youth in a way that does no harm we don't have the, the um credential to make that call. We aren't part of their treatment team from a clinical perspective. And so we don't have the right to make that call. And the damage it can do to the youth relationships with the clinicians there is huge. Um, And whenever we damage relationships that a kid has with other professionals, we may bond with them superficially, like momentarily, they may bond stronger with us. But it is, honestly, it's a selfish bond, uh, because all we're doing is cutting them off from <coughs> excuse me, potentially helpful um, partners who really, in a secure environment, that's their, um, that's their primary job. Um, they are really the primary focus in terms of rapport, and actually their rapport would trump ours because the youth, in order to get well and to heal, they really need to be able to build rapport with their in-house uh, clinical team and so it's for the same reason that a lot of times outpatient mental health services will wrap around, but they will actually stand down because they don't want to maintain rapport in a way that cuts down on the youth's ability to connect to in-house services. So for all those reasons, we would support that youth in connecting to their team, even if it's hard and hold those feelings of hardship, but not break down relationships with the team and not sort of blow up the meeting by saying in front of the kid, you know, we don't think they should be there. We, we actually aren't qualified to make that call so um, that those can be hard dynamics to navigate and I just wanted to bring them up as the beginning of like just food for thought about how uh, we sort of work through our role in treatment team settings and in RAP meetings and I would love to uh, dissect this further at a staff meeting or two or probably ongoing (laughs) because it can feel hard Um, sometimes to balance. And so um, thank you so much for listening in today for today's um, Advocacy with Esther podcast. And we will be back again with a new topic or two to discuss in the future. Um, Take good care. Keep loving the people around you well and loving yourself well. And we will talk again soon. Thanks so much.